We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. What a joy to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day to worship our great, mighty Trinitarian God. I want to begin with a few uh, announcements. And then, uh, like we have been doing, we're going to read the Nicene Creed together before we, uh, before we hear from God's Word and think deeply about the Trinity this morning. Uh, the announcement, really, is just one announcement. I believe you have or you will receive one of these uh, handouts to volunteer. And uh, the main thing I want, that, well, you'll see two things on here, Emmaus Kids, and also hospitality. Um, when you leave this morning out here in the lobby, you'll see people there with uh, papers and clipboards ready for you to volunteer. Uh, I've even given them permission to be a bit awkward and hunch you down. Uh, but seriously, uh, we would love for you uh, to volunteer. I see so many children here. Uh, this is for so many of the Mayas kids, uh, so that we can teach them and uh, teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also for my kids. Uh, I have four of my own. What a blessing that has been to my kids in, the, in years past. So please volunteer um, and uh, let us know if you have any questions on how to do that. That said, uh, let's say the Nicene Creed together, and if you Maybe you're joining us for the first time. You've missed out on the last two sermons. Uh, if you don't know what the Nicene Creed is, don't worry. In our sermon this morning, uh, hopefully that will become very clear. Uh, but this, this creed has been written by those Christians before us. And it really is, has been tested through time as a sure and reliable statement of what we believe and what the Scripture says about our God, the Holy Trinity. Before we, we recite it together, I want to remind you that as we do so, I mean, you can see those here in front of you, but we are not alone. As we say this together, we are actually linking arms with brothers and sisters in Christ 2,000 years, we are linking arms with them and confessing this God with them together. And one day we will do this. We will confess this God together in the new heavens and new earth. With that said, I think it's up on the screen. Thank you. Why don't we say this together? We believe in one God, the Father all-governing, Creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, who for us men, and because of our salvation, came down from heaven 
and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures, ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshipped and glorified together with Father and Son, who spoke through the prophets, and in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, we confess one baptism, the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are undeserving. There is no reason outside of Christ that any one of us can come here this morning because we are sinners in need desperate need of your grace and mercy. But Lord, what grace you have shown us. Father, you have sent your only begotten Son to redeem us. Father and Son, you have sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to open our eyes to the beauty of the Gospel. Your beauty. The one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us now Give us hearts and minds to understand the Scriptures and understand deep things about You. Give us patience and respect. Respect towards the mystery of the Trinity. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Though I'm going to cheat a little bit here and ask you to also have a finger in uh, 2nd Corinthians chapter 3. So 1st Corinthians chapter 8 and 2nd Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, The last two messages uh, have started our series on the Trinity. Pastor Sam uh, began with a sermon pumping you up, getting you ready to use your minds, not just your hearts, but your minds to understand the deep things of God and to come humbly to the Scriptures and to invite the fathers, the church fathers, into Emmaus with us so that we can understand the Holy Trinity together. And of course, Joseph came last week and preached, helping us understand how is this Trinity revealed to us? What does it mean to come into a knowledge, even a saving knowledge, of our triune God? This morning, I have the privilege to turn to the unity of the Trinity, or what we also call the simplicity of the Trinity. What what does it mean for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be one God? 
What does that mystery look like? Well, you would never know it uh, from looking at me, thanks to my, my dad's side of the family, but I am actually half Mexican. I know, it's, it's a bit hard to believe. Um, as often as possible, I love, absolutely love to visit uh, so many of my relatives who still live uh, in Los Angeles, where I'm from, uncles and aunts, nephews, cousins, and, and so many more, uh, many of whom I miss dearly. Um, but one, there is one person that uh, has a special place in my heart. Uh, my last name is Barrett, but on my mom's side, uh, it's Cervantes. And my aunt, uh, her name is Aunt, well, we call her Auntie Licha. And she has a special place in my heart, or what she would call familia. Because she knows the way to my heart. Maybe this is the way to your heart as well. Boo. Right? And some of you who, who know me are not surprised. <laughs> food. But it's not just any food. It's not just any food. My Aunt Licha is renowned for her Mexican food. There is nothing like it. Absolutely nothing like it. There's nothing like sitting down for a Thanksgiving dinner only to bypass the turkey and ham and go straight for one of her spicy tamales. And just when I think, I, I, I physically cannot eat anymore. I've tried, and I can't do it. She will look at me and say, mijo, you're, you're too skinny. You look like you're starving. Mijo, eat another tamale. And I'm, what, what am I supposed to do? I'm, I'm helpless. I'm helpless. These tamales are irresistible. Though she won't share the recipe with anyone, I have asked her when she dies to make sure the will is specific. <laughs> we'll see. There, there could be a family feud. I, I see it coming. With Familia, life... Well, it's always, it always revolves around food. But not just any food, food that's made with love and food that's consumed with loved ones. I hope you know what that's like. My heritage, and with food in particular, has really opened my eyes in many ways to the way that food is actually central across the Bible. Have you ever noticed this? It's a bit peculiar even from the tree in the garden all the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb to what we will do here this morning at this table. Food matters. Of course, food could also be extremely controversial in the first century. Think of the Corinthians, for example. If you know the book of Corinthians, then you know what controversy occurred over food that was sacrificed to idols. Should we eat it or not? 
Will this cause a less mature brother or sister in Christ to stumble? Now, for our purposes, if you look there with me at 1 Corinthians 8, for our purposes, Paul says something here, right in the middle of this conversation about food, that is shocking. It would have been absolutely shocking to any Jewish person who knew their Old Testament. Just after Paul says an idol has no real existence. So look at uh, verses 5 and 6 in particular. Just as after he says this, he goes on to say, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, There is one God. And listen, listen to what he says next. The Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul doesn't even have to say it. I don't think there's any question here that Paul is at the very least alluding to the Shema in the Old Testament. You think of the book of Deuteronomy, right? That fundamental confession of faith. But in the Old Testament, well, ask yourselves this question. Who who is it? Who is it that's being referred to in a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 4? Could could we include multiple names in that confession? To do so, many thought, would have been blasphemy. But Paul does it right here. In the same breath, He alludes here to the Shema and he names Jesus Christ. There is one God, he says, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul names the Father and the Son as the one God referenced and worshipped in the Old Testament. He is not inventing this. But wait, where is the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul is no binatarian. If you flip over to his second letter, 2 Corinthians, look there with me at chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. Paul is now going to introduce you to the Holy Spirit as well. He's going to use this same language of lordship, except this time he applies it not only to the Son, but to the Spirit. Now, to understand why he's doing this, we must go back, way back, to the days of Moses. In the Old Covenant, Paul says, Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites would not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Verse 14, Paul then is sad. He laments 
that their minds were hardened. Did anything change by Paul's day? Unfortunately, says Paul, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And everything at this point seems lost, doesn't it? But Paul says, hold on, there's hope. There's hope. Look at verses 14 through 16 there. He says, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is what? Removed. What good news. But wait, Paul has more good news than this. Look at verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is who? The Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. The Spirit, Emmaus, the Spirit has unveiled your faces so that we are recipients of the new covenant's blessings. But notice, the Spirit can only do so because what? He also is named here as one Lord. As the Lord, the Spirit of God, not only awakens us to new life, not only opens your blind eyes and mine, but transforms us, even sanctifies us, so that we, as Paul says later, we have the mind of Christ Himself. Sometimes, Scripture speaks of the Father. Sometimes it speaks of the Son. Sometimes, you have to turn to the next letter in Paul where he speaks of the Spirit. But whenever it refers to any one person, the biblical authors assume that person is equal, consubstantial, to use a theological term, one with, in substance, all the others holding that, as we just confessed, that one divine essence in common. The one God, the one Lord, is none other than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does it look like? What does it mean exactly, right? What does it mean exactly to confess this Lord as one? Well, to confess God as one is often, maybe this is the way you've thought in the past and there's nothing wrong with this, it's often taken to mean there is but one God. And that is certainly true. We should say nothing less, right? But there's far more to say. And I'm afraid that many Christians have never pushed themselves into the far more part To confess God is one is also to confess that God is one. He is one by nature even. Which is very different from you and I. 
He is one in nature. He is not a God who is like us. He is not a God who is made up of parts. He's not a pie. You don't divvy Him up and say this is 30% of God. Whatever you want to call it. Love, perhaps. Oh, and this, this 20% over here, we'll call, that's His hol- holiness. No, we don't do that with God. That, that is how we may work. But not with God. He's not made up of parts. He is a God without parts. There is in Him, as theologians love to say, no composition. There is in Him nothing compounded, or more to the point, nothing divisible. If there was, then He could be divided. He could be a divided being. Parts are divisible by definition. He would literally fall apart. (laughs) He would be a changing or mutable being. Parts are prone to change. He would be a temporal being. Parts require a composer. He would be, and this this is frightening to even consider, He would be a dependent being. Depending on something else in Him or outside of Him. Something else to make Him who He is. To even precede Him. These attributes may define us as finite creatures, but they cannot characterize the unchanging, timeless, self-sufficient God who has no body. Let's take a page, shall we? Let's take a page from Alice in Wonderland. Kids, I want you to give me your eyeballs. All of you in here who are kids or, or teenagers even, I want you to look at me and just hear me for a second here. Maybe your parents have read to you Alice in Wonderland. I hope they have. Maybe you've seen a movie, some version of it, I guess. When Alice falls down the rabbit hole, one of my favorite parts, she falls down the rabbit hole. Kids, what happens next? Do you remember? What is it that takes place next? She returns, this is the second time, she returns to Wonderland. And the Mad Hatter looks her over, just inspecting her, right? Because something's wrong. Something's off. Something's different. Do you remember what he says? What does he say to her? You're not the same as you were before. You were much more muchier. You've lost your muchness. Whenever we look around us, whenever we talk about us as creatures, The Mad Hatter is right. He's right. But not with God. Kids, do you you hear that? Not with God. God never, ever, ever loses His muchness. Never. He never becomes muchier than He was before. 
Why? Because he's one. He's indivisible. He's not made up of parts like us. He never can lose his muchness. Think of it this way. He is so maximally alive that it is impossible for him to ever be anything that would somehow make him become more alive than he already is from eternity. How then do we describe this God who is like this? So different from us. Well, it's almost too simple to say. God, listen to me here. This is so pivotal. God is simple. Now, that doesn't mean what you think it means. He's not elementary. He's not simplistic or easy to understand. And by now you're thinking, yeah, I'm getting that. That's not what we mean. Today, that's how we use the word simple, but we're using it in an old, ancient way. He is simple. It means all that is in God is God. His essence and His attributes are not separate entities. His essence is His attributes. And His attributes, His essence. God does not merely, this may be more, I know this sounds so complex, ironically, but this, is, this may be so basic, more basic than, than you ever realized. I think you assume it all the time when you read the Bible. Think about it this way. God does not merely get love and possess it for Himself. God is love. God doesn't become holy. That's frightening. No, He is holy. This is in le- at the very least, this is, a, this is why we can even call Him God. If this were not true, God could not be God. He would not be the source of all that is good because He is not goodness itself. No created being can be simple in this divine sense. He alone is simply God. Now what in the world does this have to do with the Trinity? Thank you for asking. We're going to get there, okay? But I want you to just pause for a second before we can answer that question. We need to learn some vocabulary, okay? And to do that, I want, I want if you have a pen or, or maybe you're on your phone, I want you to write some things down, just words, words here. I want you to be a student for a minute here, just for a second, What is it that distinguishes the persons of the Trinity? Well, one thing and one thing alone. Hear that clearly. One thing and one thing alone distinguishes the persons of the Trinity. And it's this. Eternal relations of origin. Eternal relations of origin. It's actually not as complicated as it sounds. Relations, this is 
key, relations don't refer to relationships, like you and I, how we have relationships. You're your own person, I'm my own person, but we might enter into a relationship with each other. That's not what we're talking about. We don't want to project our human experience here onto divinity. Rather, relations merely refer to each person's everlasting providence. So what are these eternal, I'm already giving it away, aren't I, these eternal relations of origin? Here they are. First, the Bible calls the Father, Father. Because He eternally begets His Son. Sometimes we call this paternity, naturally. Though He Himself is begotten by no one. He is unbegotten. What about the Son? Well, the Bible calls the Son, Son. It's almost too simple, simple to say. Because he, to be a Son, He is begotten, generated by His Father, but from all eternity. It's not the same as how begetting and generating works with us. This could be called filiation. What about the Spirit? The Bible calls the Spirit Spirit because He is eternally breathed out, spirated by the Father and the Son. We might call this spiration. These eternal relations of origin are basic to understanding the Gospel. Emmaus. The gospel you confess. Why is it so fitting that the Father sends the Son to redeem us? Because the Son is begotten from the Father from all eternity. Apart from us in our world. Why is it so fitting that the Father and Son give us the Holy Spirit? Because this is the same Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Apart from us in our world. But the key point is this. These persons are identical in all things except their eternal relations of origin. Now so far, we've identified what distinguishes these persons. But now we get to the juicy part. So don't don't take off your student hat for a second or put away your pen. One more. I promise. One more. We need to get to that central question, what then defines their unity, their simplicity? And here we can use just another phrase that refers to the really the same thing we've been talking about. And it's this, modes of subsistence. The word subsistence refers to the way the one divine essence subsists or exists in a unique way in each person. What is that unique way? We just said it. The Father begets the Son. Father and Son beget, uh, spirate the Spirit. Now stay with me here, because this is, this is the hinge. If God is not made up of parts, but He is one, He is simple, then that means that the one divine essence wholly subsists W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy subsists, exists in three persons. And each person of the Trinity is holy God. Period. The 
The point is this. Simplicity is essential. Protecting us from remaking the Trinity in the image of our own society. If I'm just frank and honest with you, all of what you just learned was basic to Christianity for almost 2,000 years until our century came along and started to mess with it and dispense with it. In its place, we've substituted a trinity that's made in our own image, in the image of our society. In this social view of the trinity that's so popular today, the trinity's unity, its simplicity is lost for a society of separate individuals who merely get along, cooperate with one another. We're no longer interested in the Trinity's eternal relations of origin, but instead we've defined the persons according to relationships as if they're just like us. Each person being their own individual with their own will, their own role, their own center of consciousness. Do you see what we've done? We've forfeited the unity of our triune God. And if taken to its extreme, well, there used to be a name for this. It used to be called tritheism. But if God is simple, then He's not made up of three different parts, is He? Nor is He divisible by three individuals, each their own with their own will, separate, maybe going solo. Instead, He is one. Indivisible. His one essence cannot be divided up among three persons, nor can it be dismantled into different parts, different agents like you and I are, different agents of divinity. Instead, the one indivisible essence wholly subsists in three persons so that each person is a subsistence of that same one undivided divine essence. That means then that whether we are talking about the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, each is to be considered true God. True God. Holy divine. Not even one of them in the slightest is less than another. Inferiority cannot exist for each of these persons is of the same identical divine nature. No one person is subordinate to the next because no one person is less divine than the next. So we've come full circle all the way back to Deuteronomy, haven't we? The simplicity of the divine essence is not the property of just one or two persons. It's the essential property of all three. So when Moses confesses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Son and Holy Spirit are also included in that confession as much as the Father. Did the church fathers understand the importance of the Trinity's simplicity? You've been reciting this creed, haven't you? They did. They did understand it. Except in their day, simplicity, the unity, was critical to safeguarding the church from the heresy 
of a, subordin a subordination that threatened really the existence of Christianity as we know it. How did this happen? Well, there was a pastor. His name was Arius. He was deeply disturbed by this biblical teaching we've described. He said, this violates the central tenet of monotheism, producing not one, but two gods. He said, I'm committed to the monarchy of God the Father. God is not just one, but the one and only one, he said, who can be principal. There's no other principle but him. And for God to be God, Arius said, he must be unbegotten. The Son is not then eternally begotten from the Father's divine nature. He cannot be equal with Him, one in nature and substance, one with the Father in divinity. And if He's not co-eternal with the Father as the Son, the Son who is eternally begotten from the Father, then the Son cannot be co-equal with the Father. As one who is not generated from the Father's divine nature, neither co-eternal or co-equal with the Father. The unity of God that we describe is not, he said, a unity of divinity, a unity of essence. Arius said it is merely a unity of will. Think about that. That has implications for worship, doesn't it? That has implications for the gospel, doesn't it? The Son merely cooperates with the will of His Father. Yeah, there's unity, but it's merely functional in nature. Just what they do together. The Son is merely an effect of the Father's divine will. He may be a Son by grace, but He is not a Son by nature. This preached. They sang songs to this effect. This is no abstract issue. This happened in the church with people just like you. The teachings of Arius and his supporters, it was like dynamite. It exploded. Everyone wondered, are we going to lose our unity? The unity we had in Christianity. And so a council was called in the 4th century in 325. Pastors from all over assembled in Nicaea. That's where we get the name from, which is modern-day Turkey. Maybe you've been there if you've ever been to Turkey. And after an in-depth evaluation, they wrote that creed to help the church know what Scripture teaches about the Trinity. A creed that they, say, they said should be confessed to safeguard us, to safeguard the Scriptures themselves. And you've been reciting it, but have you been paying attention to what it says? Notice, first of all, the emphasis on the eternal generation of the Son. He is begotten from the Father, it says. But begotten does not mean, as the Arians said it did, that the Son is a mere product of the Father's will a mere effect of the Father's authority. No, they said, the Son is begotten, what? Not made. 
There's a difference. For us creatures, to be begotten is to come into existence for the first time, right? Arius was so literal in the way he understood the Scriptures that he, he, he had no room for this type of metaphor and how it could transcend our human experience and apply to God. But it defies the limitations of our human world. Yes, the Son is begotten. That's the very definition of a Son. It's what distinguishes the Son as Son. But since this is, right, the eternal, infinite, immutable God we are talking about, the one with all the muchness, the Son's generation is eternal. It's infinite. It's unchanging. And the list just goes on. It has no beginning as we do. They also, these brothers in Christ, what, what else did they do? Well, they also said, this Son's begotten from the Father's divine essence. From all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple undivided divine essence to the Son. Notice what's happening. As we're going to see, Pastor Ronnie's going to come next week and preach on this. Eternal generation, this begetting we keep, this language we keep using, it not only distinguishes the Son, it protects the Son's equality with the Father. And so they turn to passages like John 1 or Hebrews 1 and use language in the creed to say He's true God of true God. He's light of light. Does that sound familiar? What does Hebrews 1 say? Confesses that He is the radiance of the glory of God. In the aftermath of all of this, many others came along sighed and said the same and argued that to defend this doctrine of the Trinity, to preserve the survival of Christianity as we know it, we must confess together the unity of this Trinitarian God, a unity of essence, will, and authority. Otherwise, God will fall apart. The application, I can't even begin. We would need another couple hours to describe the ramifications that follow from this. But I just want to give you two things here. They're going to take us right back, right back to the Scriptures. Number one, the, this Trinity, this Trinity's unity, simplicity as we've been calling it, this is the reason you, brother and sister in Christ, can have communion and fellowship with the whole Trinity. And, and it's the reason you can have assurance of salvation. All of this is incredibly important for salvation. If the persons are one in essence, will, and power, simply Trinity, then they work inseparably, 
indivisibly in creation and salvation. This is what the fathers called inseparable operations, meaning the external works of the Trinity in creation and salvation are undivided, indivisible, inseparable. It protected not only their unity whenever you look at the Gospel or look at Pentecost or look at the grand work of God in creation and salvation, but it then drove them back further to say, this God must be one outside of us, besides us, apart from us as well. If the Trinity is indivisible in essence, inseparable in operation, in works, then whenever you and I enter into fellowship, communion, with any one person of the Trinity, we are having communion with the whole Trinity. How incredible is that? John Owen, one of my favorites, said it this way. Forgive his old-fashioned language here. By what act soever we hold communion with any one person, there is an influence from every person to putting forth that act. What is he saying? He's saying, Christian, that when you enjoy fellowship with one person, you come under the influence of all three persons of the Godhead. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the other big defenders of the Nicene Creed, said this, no sooner, notice his, how personal this is for him, by the way, and pastoral. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And, and no sooner do I distinguish them that I am carried back to the one. Is that how you think? It's how Jesus thought. You don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 10, Jesus comforts His disciples. He comforts you. Telling them, don't worry. Don't fret. Don't become so anxious. This apply to your life right now? Are you anxious about everything? Maybe even your salvation? Jesus comforted the disciples. Telling them, the Father has given to Him, Jesus, the sheep. And no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. You know who He's referring to. What reassurance, what reassurance can Jesus give to His disciples in that moment that this is true? What's He going to give them? the deep things of God. Listen to what He says. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Jesus is not 
merely saying, hey, I'm on the same page as the Father. Hey, we plan this whole thing, it's going to work out. That's not, what he's, that's, that's not merely what he's saying. He's saying far more. He is one with the Father. And for that reason, you can be assured of your salvation. How do we know that's what Jesus is saying? Well, we get a clue by the way the religious leaders freak out. They pick up stones to kill him. Why? Not because Jesus' good works. No, they pick up stones to kill him because they understand you are making yourself God. Friends, your assurance, your every comfort in life and in death depends on the unity, the simplicity of our Trinitarian God. Second, last, You've been so patient. Thank you. This one may be new to you. The Trinity's simplicity is the key to your everlasting happiness. What? It's the key. If the Trinity is not simple, you cannot be happy. At least not in the eternal sense that Jesus talks about. That might sound strange to you. Let's think this through. Friends, Where is your happiness found? Happiness, the type that lasts, is not found in something transient, is it? The transient is, after all, transient. It comes and goes. It fades away. It cannot last. It cannot endure. All of those cannots make it less than perfect. That does not mean that it's not good, but it does mean that it's not the greatest good. It falls short of perfection. It may be good, but whatever goodness it has is derivative. Dependent on something better. The source of happiness, therefore, must be that which is not only good, but eternal. An eternal good, which does not depend on something outside of itself for its goodness. It's the source of goodness itself. This, of course, can be none other than God. God doesn't merely act in a good way. God doesn't merely possess goodness at some point. These are all terribly insufficient. This is how we think, though, isn't it? But they're terribly insufficient. We think this way because we're constantly going to him as if he's a means to something else. He's not the means to something else. He's the end. God may be good one moment and not good the next, if this is how we think of Him, there's no guarantee that when God is good, He will stay good. In other words, His muchness, His muchness is compromised. This is disastrous. But Christianity, the Bible gives us a very different way. It says to you, Christian, your God is good. He is good. He is good by nature. What does David say? Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He says this so much, doesn't he? Have you been reading the Psalms? Give thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That may seem like we are light, light years away from happiness. We, are, we have never been closer. Most will agree that happiness is located in goodness itself. And as we've seen, 
not just any understanding of goodness will do. The goodness we speak about must be ultimate, right? It must be absolute. It must be pure in the absolute sense. It must be eternal, infinite, without measure. And just as important, this goodness must be one. It must be simple. It must be single. It must be undivided. Indivisible. This goodness and this goodness alone is perfection itself. This goodness and this goodness alone is divine. This goodness and this goodness alone must be God Himself, the Holy Trinity. For our triune God is good in a way that no creature can be. His divinity is happiness. He does not have to work as we do to become happy. He is goodness itself. He is happiness. He is the plentitude of bliss and blessedness. And as the fullness of life in and of Himself, His perfection is infinite in measure. He is eternal life. If happiness is divinity and divinity is happiness, then the greatest happiness occurs right now. When we know God as Trinity, and it still awaits us, it's still to come, one day we will see Him. As Isaiah 66 says, you will see and your heart will rejoice. Emmaus, the Trinity, the Trinity leads to your everlasting bliss because the Trinity is your everlasting bliss. We come to this table, to this supper, not as those who are without a Savior. Emmaus, we labor to get the Trinity right. But the Trinity is not, it's not just a doctrine. It's who we worship, isn't it? It's who we adore. It's the very source of our everlasting life. This same Trinity saved you. The Father has sent His only begotten Son to redeem you from the curse that Adam gave to you. And the Father and the Son have then sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you and to unite you to the second Adam, Jesus Christ our Lord. When we come to this table, we are remembering at this table the sacrifice our Lord made, the forgiveness of our sins. But we're not just remembering. We're also having fellowship, communion. We come to this table by faith, not only remembering the past, but with full assurance of our present union and our ongoing communion with Christ Jesus by virtue of the Holy Spirit Himself. It's as if when we eat and when we drink, the Holy Spirit is lifting us up into the heavenlies because our Savior is no longer on a cross. He has risen and He has ascended. 
And He now intercedes for us. And it gives us hope. It makes us look to the end. This meal is a gracious means by which you continue in the faith to be patient and well-doing to each other with every assurance that Christ, the risen Christ, you will one day feast with Him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And until then, we proclaim His death, His resurrection, until He comes. If you've not trusted in this Christ, We so want you to. Come talk to us. But this meal won't benefit you. Not right now. It's not for you. You have not been united to Christ. You will not enjoy communion with this Trinity. If you have trusted in Christ, Come, eat, drink, and be grateful. I want you to walk down the side as we usually do. Come across. You'll be given the elements. And as you do so, remember, remember and celebrate now the benevolence of God's everlasting mercy. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.